so Julian, you have to make sure when you preach next time you're wearing that hat. Okay, that's just you front and center. It's awesome. Thanks, Nancy. What a gift you have been to the Yemba and to Park Street Church. May God continue to bless you in your life and ministry in the days to come. Let's take a moment and pray, Lord Jesus. We uh, thank you for your uh, gift of family and uh, the wonderful brothers and sisters you've brought here to worship together, to serve together, uh, to clarify our individual calling and our calling as a body collectively. Uh, Lord, we pray now that as we look at your word and consider it, think through it, that uh, it might be like honey to us, that would feed us, that would shape us, it would transform us, that would give us uh, greater insight into whom you desire us to be as your disciples. Lord, we pray to this end in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you were here last Sunday, uh, we talked about the transfiguration. And I made an argument that actually the transfiguration is the very center or central uh, event of the Gospel of Mark, just based on the way in which Mark frames his gospel uh, literarily. And if you missed that, then I encourage you to listen to that this coming week. But from the very height of that mountain, Mark then takes us down, Jesus, his disciples coming down the side of that mountainside in conversation, and then onward, on towards well, a walk towards Jerusalem, uh, a new location. And it's actually in this passage, a couple other places too, but well, right in the middle of this section where we hear the words that they're on their way up to Jerusalem, on their way. That's the tagline we've been using in our sermon series, on, on the way, because we're walking with Jesus on the way to the cross, understanding who he is, understanding his calling on our lives, maybe even bearing the cross that he has given us to bear in the midst of this as we walk beside him in the study of the gospel of Mark. Well, the next segment, uh, the next significant ge geographic event in Mark occurs then in chapter 11. It's the triumphal entry Going into Jerusalem, Jesus rides on a donkey and uh, people flock out to celebrate his presence. And we're, we'll talk about that on April 5th on Palm Sunday. But between the transfiguration and the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the rest of this section, chapter, rest of chapter 9 into chapter 10, all of chapter 10, it's all given over to one central issue. It's all about discipleship. It's all about what it means to follow Christ. Remember, at the height of the transfiguration, on top of the mountain, the very last word that is spoken, spoken to the disciples is, listen to him. Listen to him. Look, you see where, who he is in his fullness. Now listen to him, obey him, follow him. Take to heart what he says. Think of things the way in which he thinks of them. 
Well, then this next two chapters or cha rest of chapter nine into chapter 10, it's all about figuring out what that means, what it looks like. Uh, and, and so I've put up a diagram up above my head for, for you to take a look at about the shape of chapter 9 and chapter 10. Because when you first look at these stories, it just it looks like it kind of goes from here to there, this topic to that topic. And it doesn't at first look like uh, there is anything unifying it. But when you begin to really think about it and look at the way Mark lays out these stories, it's, it's a marvelous structure underlying it. And it all is driven by a, this main theme with a main message about discipleship that we want to tease out of this section. So you can see at the very top and the very bottom, uh, it's the, this section is fenced off by the event of the transfiguration and then the, uh, the triumphal entry. But then right inside, you, you see there's two stories of mirac uh, miraculous events, uh, uh, exorcism of a demon from a boy in Mark chapter 9, verse 14 is where that starts. That's at the top. Well, at the bottom, you find that, well, there's another miraculous story. It's a, a story of the healing of a blind man, Bartimaeus. And so these two stories of Jesus' authority and power, they, they bookend this entire section about discipleship. Why is that? Well, Mark doesn't want, to for, want us to forget as we look at this section, you know, who Jesus is. That, this authority, this power, that's the whole theme of the first half of Mark, all the way up to Mark 8, of manifesting Jesus' authority and power. And so here, those two theme, that theme is driven home in the beginning and end of this section. Well, then if you move into the next story, the next section of, of uh, what Mark tells us, we find that there are two statements made. Very similar, almost identical. The, the first one is about uh, Jesus' appending death uh, and his uh, resurrection. We, we see that he says, um, you know, something to the fact that I'm going to die, I'm going to be raised from the dead, there's suffering. Uh, and, and so we have that first statement then what do we get at the end? There's the second half of the gospel, uh, or the second half of this section, the end of this section, we get the same kind of statement again, that, well, he's going to suffer and die. Well, we know that's the theme of the whole second half of the gospel of Mark. So you get the first theme of the gospel of Mark, his power and authority. Then you get the second half of Mark, his suffering, his death, and expected uh, resurrection, that he'd rise again from the dead. Well, if you look at right before the, the blue section, uh, right before the first red section, uh, we, we find out that, well, it says this, 9.31, 30, it says, Mark writes that they left that place, passed through Galilee, Jesus did not want anyone to know 
where they were going. Why? Well, because he was teaching his disciples. It tells us exactly what this section is about, teaching his disciples. This is all focused on his disciples. Well, when you look at the last red section, the same statement, same kind of statement starts out that section. Uh, It says, again, this is 1032, again, he took his disciples aside to tell them what was going to happen. So we now see the focus of this section is all about teaching the disciples, letting them understand what it means to be disciples. Well, what then is the main message? Well, that's actually at the end of each of the red sections. You can see the the bottom blue right below each of uh, those red sections. He says, expresses his uh, impending death and resurrection. And then we get these two similar stories. One is, uh, first disciples are arguing about who's the greatest. And Jesus says, what are you guys arguing about? And they just kind of clam up, don't say anything. Jesus actually knew what they're arguing about. So he makes a statement to them there. Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Well, then you go to the last statement where he says, I'm going to suffer and die and uh, raise, be raised again. And what do you find? You find a very similar story. This time it's James and John, and they are having a conversation, and they go to Jesus and say, Jesus, we just want to ask you one thing. When you're in your glory, we want to sit to your left and to your right. I mean, they, they want to be great, just like Jesus. And so Jesus responds to them in that story, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to give his life as a ransom for many. And that's it. That is the main message of chapter 9 and chapter 10 laid out in a very clear structure to drive home uh, to his readers, Mark's readers, Jesus' words that anyone who wants to be first, they've got to be last. If you follow Jesus, it means that you must serve him. The first will be last. Serve him, serve one another, put yourself last. I've tried to uh, teach this concept to my daughter, Tabitha, uh, seven years old. When we go up to my office, uh, my office is in the fifth floor, and we get on the elevator on the first floor, and I always begin an argument with her. And as the elevator's going up, I say, yeah, Tabitha, when the elevator opens up, I want you to get off first. Well, then she engages in the argument and she turns right back to me and says, "Uh, no, dad, that's okay. You can get off first. And then I said, oh, no, 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 no. But I insist, Tabitha, I don't, you, you, you get off first. She says, no, no, no. Now we're about the fourth floor or so. Uh, No, no, dad. No, I, I want you to go. So the elevator opens up and I always give in to her. 
I say, okay, fine. And I rush to the office before she gets there and she finally catches up to me. And as she walks into the office, every time I'll say, aha, I beat you. I came in first. And I can't tell you how much joy it gives her to correct me. Uh, she says, dad, don't forget, Jesus says, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And so then I'll look dejected and she smiles back at me. So, you know, it's not a bad way to, to try to teach these scriptural principles. You can use anything, elevators or whatever. But that's the whole focus of this section, these stories, these events uh, that, that are bookend in chapter 9 and 10. Jesus uses a number of life situations. You can see them in the brown up there to, to drive home what it means to be last, what it means to serve others, what it means to put others' needs, in fir uh, needs first before your own. Mark 9.36 uh, talks about a holy example. Earlier than that, John, I mean, uh, Mark talks about, uh, shares about Jesus' interaction uh, where it's welcoming, how to welcome other people. So welcoming, holy living. Uh, he talks about marriage and the principles behind marriage and divorce. And, and it all has to do with serving the other person. Uh, then it goes on to talk about our passage today, children, and our perspective on children and what understanding who children are, how they apply to us. Then it goes on to issues around wealth and this rich young ruler and what, uh, as he goes away dejected, what, what he values and how he should view himself in relationship uh, to being a disciple or following the Lord. So all, all of these stories are, are wrapped together uh, around the idea of servanthood and being first, uh, not being first, but being last, considering yourself the least. And, and so I, I want to just ask you for a, a moment to think about that. Think about serving and servanthood. Think about the people in your life. How does that play out for you? Do you view yourself as a servant of, of those that are around you, the ones who live in your household, the pl your place at work, or even at church? I, I'm looking around. I see a few teenagers in here. If I was uh, to ask you, what would it mean for you to serve your mom and dad rather than expecting your mom and dad to be always serving you and taking care of you. What would that look like for you? I know all the moms and dads are like cheering on. Go, Chris, go. <laughs> but let me think of it uh, another way for you. If you're an adult here and you have um, a mom and dad who's still alive, raise your hand. Certainly a lot of you. What would it mean for you to serve your mom and dad, very busy lives you live, there's somewhere else, maybe you can't even, well, what would it mean for you to stop and do something meaningful for your mom and dad, to serve them, to speak into their lives, to meet a need they have, to stop your busyness and to, you know, 
take care of them in some way. How about your husband or wife? What would it look like if you put their needs before your own? You serve them. Look, a lot of you are working, both husband and wife are working at, uh, in some place and you get home at night. What is your first thought when you get home? Is it, how can I serve my wife as I walk through this door? Wives, is your, is your thought, you know, you might have had a busy day working at, in, you know, a business somewhere or taking care of kids. Is your first thought when you're walking through that door after a busy day, how can I serve my husband as he walks through that door? How about a church? Here you all are. You all gathered. You came to church and you're about to go home from our gathering. Will you serve someone before you go home? Is there some way that you're going to serve others? Or are you just coming and going? And I, you know, first I admire and affirm that you're here to serve Christ. You're worshiping him. You're giving him glory. You're speaking your love and affection to him. That's a good thing. Uh, that's why we're here. You're supposed to do that. But what about afterwards or beforehand? Uh, this is your family. Did you take care of any kids? Did you welcome somebody? Did you cook some food for somebody? Are you serving your spiritual family? What about work or school? Are you striving uh, in some way to make your achievement known, your work, are you trying to let people see you placing yourself into a posture of, of advancement so that when you know, others see you, they'll think of you first before everybody else? Or do you relish being the servant of everyone else in your workplace? That you're behind the scenes and blessing and caring and encouraging and not worried about your own advancement. See, this is all about a posture of humility. If somebody was to evaluate you, would that be the first word that would come to their mind? That is a man of humility. That is a woman of great humility. Do you want to get off the elevator of life first? You want to get off before everybody else. Well, we find out two things uh, about a posture of humility in our passage this morning. The, this little brief interaction between Jesus and these children. First, we find out about Jesus' view of children, and thus it should be our view. And it is really hard to overestimate the impact verses 13 and 14 have had on history, the history of mankind. This, these two verses have, in a significant way, impacted Western society and our view of kids, just these two verses, because Jesus says these two things 
uh, these these few words about uh, about children. Mark records people were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. But the disciples rebuked them when Jesus said that, saw this. He was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. This was just not the predominant worldview at that period. It wasn't the posture that society took towards children, particularly in the Roman culture, uh, which was the dominant worldview at that time. You've probably heard about one of their practices called child exposure. Child exposure, when, when there was an unwanted infant, they would just abandon it on a dung heap. They'd just leave it on a garbage dump. They just leave it out in the elements to die. That's why it was called exposure, exposure to the elements. Why would they do that? Well, some, some families felt like they had too many children already. They couldn't handle feeding another child, so they'd put it out on the poop pile to die. Uh, others were, you know, defected, had some kind of birth defect and or looked weak and would not you know be helpful in any way so they'd leave it out in the trash to die uh, some perhaps because of paternity issues and unwanted pregnancies uh, it was just easier to put the baby out there and just let it die there the baby would lay crying alone unfed, unwanted, until it died. The Roman philosopher Seneca wrote, we doom scabby sheep to the knife, lest they should infect our flocks. We destroy, therefore, monstrous births, and we also drown our children if they are born weakly or unnaturally formed to separate what is useless from what is sound. Not out of anger, but out of reason. How could such a thing be done? Well, it's because kids were understood as the least of these. No value. Last. You can do that kind of thing to things that don't have value, that don't, yeah, that are considered least. So what did Jesus do? What was his view? He took infants in his arm. He, he placed his hands on these children and he blessed them. Do you understand how completely countercultural that was? Remember, this gospel is written to a Roman society. Uh, is speaking into their world. And, you know, in light of that context, this was a radical view to embrace, promote, acknowledge, and still great worth and value to those in society who were considered valueless, or the least of these. 
And guess what? The Christians followed his example. There are a number of texts that showed that they began a transformative pro-life movement among the Roman Empire. They would, they would scour the garbage dumps and the dung heaps. If they found the baby, they would take it in for their own and they would raise these children. If they found a dead baby, they would take it and wash it and clean it and give it a popular, uh, an appropriate uh, burial, proper burial. Then came along uh, Constantine, the first Christian emperor of Rome, and he actually changed some of the laws. He, he began to find ways to curb that practice. So these early Christians, they should be of great encouragement to, to us who are committed to pro-life, pro-kids, caring for them, uh, defending the least among us. That's what they did. That's what we should do. And this wasn't new. This was not some new thing that Jesus was thinking about or craving. This was always the view of, of children in the eyes of the Lord. Children are a heritage from the Lord, offer, offspring a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them, Solomon says in Psalm 127. Children were sacrificed in the practices of early, uh, earlier pagan religions, uh, like to the god of Moloch. And that's, that's actually what our passage we read in the Old Testament today was reflecting on or um, arguing against. It actually starts out in Deuteronomy 12.1. It says, you must not worship the Lord your God in their way. What way is that? One of the ways was the sacrifice of children. And then it goes on to what we read in 10 through 14. It says, Then to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name, there you're to bring everything I command you, burnt offerings, sacrifices, tithes, special gifts, and all the choice possessions you have vowed to the Lord. And there rejoice before the Lord your God. And listen, it says, You, your sons, your daughters, your male and female servants and the Levites from your towns, sons and daughters and servants. These are the ones who might be considered the least. Moloch wanted child sacrifice. Yahweh wanted children and servants to rejoice in his presence. And so did Jesus. Jesus was about loving the least of these, those who were last in society, who were, they were, well, they were first in his estimate. I mean, he really, really was the pro, pro life for the very, very least of these. So when the disciples uh, saw children coming to visit Jesus, they rebuked, uh, they rebuked the parents, rebuked the children and said, no, go away. 
And you look at that, you think, well, that's not as bad, you know, it, it's not as egregious as child sacrifice or child exposure, but something about their response to children was demonstrably egregious to Jesus. He, he was indignant when they tried to keep children away from him. But I mean, put yourself in that situation. It's not that hard to imagine, you know, all these kids coming and the disciples saying, hey, stay away. I mean, think if Tim Keller was here. If Tim Keller, you invited Tim Keller to be the preacher to say, you know, instead of Perkins, and everybody, oh, Tim's here. Let, here's my child. The, Tim, I want you to bless. Would you pray for my child? Yeah, after a while, somebody certainly would probably say, hey, 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 Tim is not here to interact with the kids. He's here to talk to the grown-ups, right? That's, that's sort of what uh, it seems like what's going on. But, but why would we assume that? Why wouldn't Tim Keller come and speak to our children? Well, why wouldn't Jesus be speaking to these children? And that really brings us to the second lesson of this short passage on humility, this posture of humility. The first lesson was that Jesus loves the least of these, those who were considered last. The second lesson is this. We should not consider ourselves better than the least of these. We're not to view ourselves as smarter or more deserving or possessing a higher status than the least of these. And in this example, children. And that is what Jesus was indignant about. It wasn't just that the children were being hindered. It was the attitude of the disciples. It's why they were hindering these children. The disciples thought they deserved to be around Jesus uh, but not really the children. They were considering themselves better. They didn't consider themselves the least or the last. Certainly compared to these children, they didn't. They exercised their authority over them. They thought they had a privileged position compared to these children. And that attitude just drove Jesus crazy indignant. Well, that's us, isn't it? We, we, we cannot consider ourselves better than the least. We, we, we can't, we've got to be a servant to everyone. It, it's not just being nice and doing nice things of service. That's not what it's about. It's actually about a radical attitude change where you're actually viewing who you are serving as better than you. That they should be more blessed than you. That they are smarter than you. That's a whole different thing than just being nice and doing nice things for them. It's a, it's a posture of radical humility. That, that's what Paul says in Philippians 2. He says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, 
Uh, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. What would it be like if you had that attitude when you look at other people? Those who have a different opinion than you. Those that you oversee and have authority over. What would it be like if you actually considered them better than yourself? I'm actually um, later this afternoon heading to Spain uh, with my family for a week or two vacation. So pray for us. We hope we will be back in that time period and not have to spend an extra 14 days somewhere. But as we're taking off, I, I, um, maybe I'll just take advantage of the fact that I'm going to be away for a week or two and my email is going to be on automatic reply and I'm not going to look at anything uh, that comes in. Because I mean, think, about the, think about this radical humility in relationship to some of our own issues as a church, how that might apply to us. What about a radical humility of theology or a theological humility in relationship with each other. And this is one of the things we actually rally around as a church. We, we say we major in the majors and show charity, show love towards each other in secondary issues. You know, that means that there's a few things that we just hold on to and we will not let go as a church because it is defining for us of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. Things like the identity of God as a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, issues, doctrines like uh, the complete necessity to depend only on Christ for salvation and not our own works. Only upon Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Only on him. Uh, doctrines about the presence of God among us through his Holy Spirit. Uh, things that speak about the end time, that there's an expectation that Jesus will come back and bring about a final judgment and he will make all things new. We, we don't compromise on those things. Uh, we hold them in humility as we express them, but we're not changing on any of that. But then there's this whole other set of doctrines and theologies that we, we will look at and say, you know what? They do not define our relationship with the Lord. They don't define uh, who the Lord is himself. And so, well, what about these other doctrinal issues? Like baptism. Some of us in here believe you should not baptize infants. You're called believer baptists. You know, that it's only after you make a confession of faith you should pour water and baptize someone. Others here, you hold to the belief that, no, you should baptize infants because just like circumcision was the sign of the old covenant, baptism is a sign of the new covenant, you, you circumcise children, well, you should baptize children. Those two doctrinal beliefs are divergent from each other. They're both very logical, though. They're built on scriptural arguments. And so what do we do? Well, we hold an issue like that at Park Street Church with 
a, a theological humility that we might be passionate about it. We argue with each other. We try to convince each other, but we're not going to divide over it. You know, it's something that, you know, I'm 80% convinced of my view, but there's 20%. Maybe I could be wrong because you make a pretty good argument here too. And, and if you can convince me, I'm ready to change and you should be ready to change too. If we can convince each other, the scriptures uh, actually lead us to this conclusion with greater um, certainty. What about women in ministry? Probably shouldn't mention that. That's like that the past year has been a really big issue for a few folks. It's an important issue. We need to work that out and think through it. There are those who look at scripture and say, you know what? From what I can see, it doesn't, scripture does not seem to affirm that women should serve as elders or ministers in church leadership positions in those particular roles for certain reasons. There are others, when they look at the scriptures, they say, no, look, there's a number of places where it appears that women are leading, uh, are leaders within their uh, context. Christian leaders, leaders in the Old Testament. Both of them, based on scripture, make sense, logical arguments. And so we have to decide, are we going to have a level of theological humility with each other. We can say, well, we're only going to take one view. And if you don't like it, there's a church out there somewhere for you. Or, or do we have this, this sense of humility with each other that, well, no, we're not going to divide over that. We're going to find a way to honor each other and, and build each other up, regardless of some of these differences we have in interpretation. Can we be a church that embraces a theological humility. What about worship? Uh, a th worship humility. Having children in our services. You know, some churches like, get the kids out. That's their place. This is just for the grown-ups. Who's that sound like? It sounds like the disciples. Now, where, where's the very best place for kids to learn how to worship? Well, it's watching their moms and dads, really. They, they always emulate their moms and dads. And, and so we're a church that we, we want to have kids together in our worship part. Why are we any more deserving to be in this room than our children? Just, just have them here with us. You could, you could give our whole children's ministry a huge break <laughs> if you just keep them here with you. And they could actually worship with us uh, you know, as, as well. Next week, there's a children's cantata. 70, 80 kids will be up front leading our worship service. And I, I know that there are some people who won't come to our worship service next week because, well, that's the kids thing. That's not real worship. Do you think the children think it's not real worship? Do you think God their father who's looking down upon them. Do you think he's looking down going, oh, that's not real worship? Or do you think he absolutely delights in that worship? I wonder if you embraced you know, others as better than yourself, if you might join us and affirm those children in worship. Or, you know, the other, how about the other, uh, you know, adult worship issue, those contemporary worship and those of traditional, oh my gosh, I'm going to get myself in huge trouble now. 
What would a worship humility be like if we approached that issue? That we wouldn't consider others better than ourselves, view them, their view. You know, those who hold to contemporary worship, that's the way we should be worshiping. You know what? It, it, It appeals to the younger generation. It touches hearts. It moves people more. It gives you the feels. Well, that's a good argument. It's a good read. Those in the traditional, those who embrace traditional worship, well, it's tied to the ages. The songs have, have made it through history. Uh, it, it's such a developed form of music. How It's the best way we can express ourselves. That's a great argument, too. I'm convinced by both of them. And so what do we do? Do we separate Or is there a way in which, if we were to consider the other view better than ourselves, the interest of others better, what would it mean? What would we do? How would we change our way of interacting with each other? Finally, what what about humility in your relationships? What about your husband or your wife? tell you what, the reason you have a relationship with Jesus Christ is because he forgave you and then he considered himself nothing in order to reach out to you to build a relationship up with you. What if you were to follow that example with your husband or your wife? If you just forgive them for what they've done to you, And then you begin to consider them better than yourself. You consider their interests before your own. Those two little things, what would that do to your marriage if you would just do those two things? Don't expect the other person. Jesus didn't expect you to do it. He did it. And he restored the relationship. What if you did that? What might happen in your relationships? Well, gone on far too long, but you can take all of these principles and ask yourself, am I living in a posture of humility towards others? Am I serving? Am I considering myself the least, the last? Because if you are, you're a disciple of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for how you challenge us in it. We ask for your forgiveness. We ask that you'd give us a spirit of humility. Lord, forgive us for thinking we know it all and our ways better. And Lord, just change our hearts towards one another in our marriages, with our kids, with our friends those we're dating, the people in our workplace, and particularly within our church family. We pray for your kingdom's sake. Amen.